All right, we're drawing near to the end of our series on faith based on Hebrews 11. And uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 11 today as well as another passage of Scripture if you want to turn to Hebrews 11. I pray that over the course of these studies, I believe this is number 25 in this in this series, I pray that you have developed a solid biblical perspective on faith. If there are some of these you want to rehear at some point, they are all on the church website under sermon audio, and uh, they are all uploaded uh, and there, and so uh, you can go back and hear audio versions of any of these if you have an interest in following up on anything that we've done in past weeks. But uh, I pray that uh, you have by now developed a very solid biblical perspective on faith. Uh, you know by now that biblical faith is not some mystical feeling of hopefulness. And you just believe, 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 believe that, that everything is going to turn out okay. That's not what faith is. Faith is confidence in God. Believing all that God has said, accepting what God says, even when we can't understand it all, biblical faith is always rooted in the character and the promises of God. We believe because of who God is. We are confident that God is always right. He is always true, so our confidence is in Him. Faith is conviction to do what God says to do. We believe what God says is true, so we are committed to obey it. Our conviction that God is right and true, that always drives our behavior. As I said to you, week after week after week, we do what we do because of what we believe. We are all motivated to do what we do because of what we believe. And when we believe what God says, then we have the desire and the commitment to obey. Some of you may be familiar with the name Pastor Richard Wormbrand. He has been with the Lord for many years now, actually born in 1909, died in 2001. He was in Europe uh, for during the World War II era, and he spent 14 years in a communist prison in Romania just after World War II, beaten many times and tortured for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He used to say, Richard Wormbrand used to say, he used to write it and quote it many times, he would say, a man really believes not what he recites in his creed, but only the things he is ready to die for. Good thoughts. A man really believes, a man who spent 14 years in a communist prison being beaten and tortured for his faith, he says a man really believes not what he recites in his creed, but only the things he is ready to die for. You see, faith is confidence in God, faith is conviction to do what God says to do, and in our third thought, I keep hammering away at faith brings confirmation. God gives us the assurance that we are on the right track, first through the scripture and eventually through our circumstances. God makes it known to us that we are making the right choices. So biblical faith is not abstract, it is not mystical, it, it is concrete, solid, real, biblical faith because its foundation is the Word of God, not our feelings, not our desires. Its foundation is the Word of God. Now last week, the one point we were driving toward is that real faith, real biblical faith, is not affected by our circumstances. We could be experiencing great victories and feeling very blessed. 
Or we could be destitute, afflicted, and tormented living in a cave, as we saw in our passage last week. Either way, uh, we will still be believing God, not believing in God, but believing God if we have real if we have real faith. Real faith has God as its focus. Real faith is never me focused. It's always God focused. So we trust the promises of God even if we never personally see them fulfilled. We know what God says is true and right. We know that it's going to happen, even if we don't live to see it, even if we don't experience it in this life. We know that what God says is true and it's going to come to pass. And we, and we choose to believe the words of Isaiah 46. I believe I quoted them to you last week where God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand, I will do all my pleasure. He said, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. And he said, I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. God makes promises. God says, I am God. I will do what I say I'm going to do. There's no one like me. I know the end from the beginning and from ancient times. I know things that haven't happened yet. And he said, I've purposed it. I'm going to do it. When I've spoken it, I'll bring it to pass. And so we look at the promises of God. And you and I say, even if I don't see it, even if I don't live to see it, I know God is going to do it. And down through the ages, God's people have clung to the promises of God, particularly the promise of the Redeemer. They struggled with sin just like we do. They had hope in God just like we do. They had anticipation of the coming of the anointed one of God, the Messiah, to redeem man from sin. When God said, I will place salvation in Zion, which we, which was just, I just quoted to you in Isaiah 46, God said that many, many times in many, many ways down through the centuries. And I want you, if you have your place there, I know you do in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read verse 39 and 40 again. In fact, I'm going to go back to verse 33 and read that again, because then you kind of get the context of what it is. So let's look at verse 33 there. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens or the foreigners, Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And in these two verses we're focused on this weekend, all of these, the ones who subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness and stopped the mouths of lions, and the ones who were destitute, afflicted, and tormented, all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us or differently than we were. So regardless of their circumstances, the people in ancient times had their confidence in God 
trusting his promises, waiting for their fulfillment. But notice it says, they did not receive the promise. You see, there was one particular promise they were waiting for. And that was the promise of the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who was going to solve our sin problem once and for all. And note he's also said in those two verses, 39 and 40, that God has provided something better for us, something better than everything that the Old Testament had to offer. Fifteen times in this letter to the Hebrews, we see the word better. The whole point of the letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is better than everything in the Old Testament. Through Christ, if you read through the book, you'd see that through Christ we have a better hope. We have a better covenant. We have better promises. We have a better sacrifice. We have better eternal possessions. We have a better country awaiting us. We have a better resurrection. The Old Testament sacrifices just temporarily covered sin, but they did not take them away. The entire system in the Old Testament was imperfect, it was incomplete, but it was all that they had until the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer, the Savior, all those terms of Jesus. Jesus is better than everything. The Old Testament followers of the Lord, he said, could not be perfected differently than we were. Everyone has always been saved by genuine faith. But the Old Testament believers looked forward to the coming of the Redeemer. And we look back to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And I want to look for a moment with you at the first promise of the coming Redeemer. The very first promise in the Old Testament when he says these people were waiting for this promise, they got a good testimony through faith, but they never received the promise. None of them lived to see uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, dying for our sin. None of them lived to see the new covenant being brought into effect that, w- that was so common to us today through the teaching of the New Testament. But they knew it was coming. Because God had promised it. And I want to show you today the first promise of the coming Redeemer. It's way back in Genesis in chapter 3. Way back in Genesis in chapter 3. Some of you well-read Bible students are already thinking, Hey, wait a minute, isn't that the chapter that records Adam and Eve's first sin, the fall of man? You are absolutely correct. And you know, it's a a beautiful thing to realize that God's first promise to send a Redeemer came on the very day that Adam and Eve first sinned. God is a God of hope. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And the very day that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and broke His one command and plunged the entire human race into sin and separation from our Creator, that very day, our Creator promised to send a Redeemer. I know many of you are familiar with this passage, but let's refresh our memories and read it again for our own sakes, as well as for those who may not be familiar with this passage of Scripture. We won't make uh, too many comments along the way, but when we finish reading this piece, then we'll make some comments that we want to think about. So we're going to start to read Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to read to verse 15. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Just a few notes to think about. as we, And then we will wind up there in verse 15, which is the first promise of the Redeemer. Satan, being a fallen archangel, a supernatural spirit being, he possessed the body of a snake and he spoke to Eve. And of course, Eve, living in a totally perfect environment, having no sin herself, she was not bothered at all in the least by a snake who spoke. Having no sin nature, having no suspiciousness about her, uh, nothing even seemed to be out of the ordinary. So Satan, when he came and spoke to Eve, he questions God's character He questions God's goodness, and he questions God's words. He's saying, oh, did God really say that? Oh, you know why God told you that? God told you that because he doesn't want you to turn into him. See, he's questioning the character of God. He's saying God's a liar and God's sneaky. He's questioning God's goodness. He's saying, well, he just doesn't want you to be like him. He's questioning God's words. And as the Lord Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, he called Satan, he said he was a liar from the beginning. And he certainly was. So as soon as they sinned, Adam and Eve became self-conscious. They had a sense of guilt, and they began blaming the other person for their actions. And that is really, in many ways, the core of our sin nature. It's interesting. As soon as they ate the fruit, they became self-conscious. They realized they were naked. They had a sense of guilt. God comes and calls out to them. What do they do? They run and they hide. And they start blaming the other person for their action. Adam, what have you done? Oh, it's that woman you made for me, Lord. Eve, what have you done? It's the snake. He tricked me. And, and, and you will see, if you have little children in your home, you, you will see, and, and, and if we are honest with ourselves when we look in the mirror, we will see all those things that drive our sin nature. Self-consciousness, a sense of guilt, and always wanting to blame the other person. That began right there in the Garden of Eden. 
And then another interesting note of this passage is that God, from the very beginning, He offers sinners a chance to repent, to admit their sin, to own it. Isn't it? I've always thought it was interesting. God comes in to, to, to the garden and He says, Adam, where are you? God knew where He was. God knows everything. You think God didn't know where they were hiding? Of course He knew where they were hiding. Adam, did, did you, we were naked, we hit our... Oh, did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? God knew they ate the fruit. What's, what's, what's God doing? He's offering them an opportunity to confess. He's offering, offering them an opportunity to repent. And God does that for us all of the time. So he, he comes to us, Larry, where are you? Oh, Lord, I'm hiding. Oh, why, why are you hiding? God knows exactly what's going on. That's a great way you can deal with your children as well. You know, ask them questions. I saw you do that. No, don't confront them yet. Ask them questions. Give them an opportunity to, to come clean with it. Give them an opportunity to confess. That's the way God dealt with Adam and Eve. The very first sin ever committed. Uh, God offers sinners again and again a chance to repent, a chance to admit their sin, a chance to own it. And then, of course, God curses the snake, the actual animal. And then he turns to Satan in verse 15. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The, the word enmity is obviously related to the word enemy. And, and it, 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 it indicates open hostility and aggression and, and hatred and animosity and the desire to destroy and God says there's going to be open hostility between Satan's descendants, those who follow him, and the woman's descendant. Now the interesting thing here, the interesting item here, is that God did not say that the war would be between Satan's descendants and Adam's descendants. And we, and all of us, we came from the seed of a man and the seed of a woman, the egg and the sperm. But here God says the war is going to be between Satan's descendants and a woman's seed, which interestingly the word seed there is a singular noun. He's not talking about all of the descendants of women. He's talking about one particular descendant of a woman. It's a singular noun. The war is going to be between Satan's descendants and one of, of, of a woman's descendants, which God then calls he and him and his. He says, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet. It's just an interesting prophecy. You see, he says Satan is going to bruise. The word there means to grip so tightly that it crushes. So sometimes it's translated crush. He will crush your head and you will crush his foot or his heel. But Satan is going to bruise, he's going to grip so tightly that it crushes what one of, one of, or the, 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 the heel of this seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to grip so tightly that he crushes the head of the serpent. Now if somebody was going to grip one of my bones so tightly that it crushes it, I would much rather it be my heel than my head. The heel would be quite painful and quite debilitating, but the head, obviously, the head crush is going, is going to kill me. And so in, in this fascinating way, God says, One day, Satan, there will come one 
seed of a woman. An, an obvious portrayal of the virgin birth of Christ. And, and, and he, him, this, this one man who is the seed of a woman, he is going to, he is going to smash your head. But in the process, you're going to crush his heel. Interesting picture of, of this coming Redeemer who is going to smash the head of the devil. Verse 21, there it says, Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So, so we have several beautiful truths revealed to us in this otherwise horrifying event. We see that there's going to be a war between Satan's followers and the seed, singular of the woman. He, the seed of the woman, will be hurt by Satan, but Satan is going to get his head stomped by this one seed of the woman. This tells us that the Redeemer is going to be human. He's the seed of the woman. But he also, he would only be descended from a woman. As I said, a fascinating revelation of the coming Messiah that came on the day that Adam and Eve first sinned. And of course, you've got to understand, God did not throw this plan together that day. The book of Revelation calls Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, this was all planned before creation. We also see here in this passage of Scripture the principle of substitution, or as theologians call it, substitutionary atonement. To atone means to cover. Adam and Eve were supposed to die. Remember, God said to them, in the day you eat the fruit, you'll die. But God killed an animal in their place. So that's the principle of substitution. This animal died in the place of Adam and Eve. We see the concept of a blood sacrifice. The life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11 tells us. So when blood is shed, it pictures the pouring out of the life. And so we've got this beautiful picture of a coming Redeemer who's going to crush Satan. We have the principle of substitution. We have the principle of blood sacrifice. And from this day forward, starting in chapter 4 of Genesis, all the way through up to the cross... A blood sacrifice, the death of an animal, was needed to atone or to cover for sin. And so, starting in chapter 4, we see Cain and Abel bringing offerings all the rest of the way through the Old Testament. For the next 4,000 years of human history, the shedding of the blood of an animal sacrifice was necessary for the covering of sin. The law of Moses expanded in great detail the system of sacrifices to atone for sin. And all of that continued up until the time of Christ, as most of you know. And see, all of that time, for 4,000 years, the people of God were waiting, praying, trusting, looking, watching. And almost all of them did not live to see the promise Fulfilled, as Hebrews 11 says. But look, look back at the book of Hebrews again, if you would, please. We don't have the time to examine in great detail the step-by-step -step teaching in chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews that lead up to our great faith chapter we've been looking at in 11. But let me show you the better way that chapter 11 illustrates. As he said, God having provided something better for us. What is that better way? 
Well, we're just going to take a little scan of a few verses in, in chapter 9 and 10. We're going to start in chapter 9 and verse 22. Chapter 9 and verse 22. He says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness, there is no covering for sin. Very important principle, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, without the shedding of blood, there is no covering for sin. Something had to die because of sin. The blood had to be poured out. The life had to be poured out. Something had to take the place of the people who deserved to die because of sin. So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness. No, 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 no cleansing from sin. Therefore, he says, it was necessary, verse 23, that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. You say, what's he talking about? If you go back in chapter 9, he's, he's basically saying that everything in the Old Testament tabernacle, everything in the Old Testament temple, were representations of things that are in heaven. And so he says, Christ, verse 24, has not entered the holy place here on earth, the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, blood of an animal sacrifice. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. What is that beautiful picture? The writer to the Hebrews, of course, is speaking to Jewish people who understand all the Old Testament sacrifices. And he's saying that priest who was taking that lamb on the Day of Atonement, going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood on the altar, he said that was just a picture of what Jesus Christ was going to do in heaven. That was just looking forward to what Jesus Christ was going to do one for all. He said, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't take his blood into the tabernacle or into the temple. He went right into the very presence of God, and he offered his blood on the as a sacrifice for our sin in the very presence of God. And he said he only had to do it once, because he's perfect. He said he has appeared once now to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look at chapter 4, I'm sorry, sorry, chapter 10, verse 4. And you see an interesting thing there. He says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see, when God killed that whatever animal he killed in Genesis 3 and made the, and made the skins uh, into clothing for Adam and Eve, that, that didn't obliterate their sin. That just covered it up temporarily. And all those offerings and sacrifices that had been gone on for the last 4,000 years up to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no way that it could actually wipe out sin. It was just a temporary covering. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came, He, he banished it. He destroyed it. He, he put it away. Look down at verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. We've talked about these verses in, in time past, and I'll tell you again today, if you have not, if you are a Bible highlighter or underliner, if you have never marked verse 12, 
may I encourage you to do so. That is such a pivotal, important, absolutely essential verse for us to know and understand. We're going to read verse 11 and 12. The writer of Hebrews says, Every priest, these are the guys in the Old Testament, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That is such a glorious verse. Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. I know you know this. I'm going to preach it to you again today anyway. Jesus Christ is not suffering today. And the reason that's so, that's so crucial for us is we are coming to a time of year when millions of people are doing things to themselves to share in Christ's sufferings. They are believing that Christ is still suffering for, for their sin and that He's suffering on a regular basis for their sin and they have, they have to do something to share in all of that so they can achieve max, maximum forgiveness. But the Redeemer that was promised in Genesis 3 that the people of God waited for for 4,000 years, the Redeemer has finished His work. He is now seated at the right hand of God. God has provided, as we read in, our, in the early part of our sermon, God has provided something better for us. Something better than a system of offerings and sacrifices and ceremonies that looked forward to the Redeemer. He has offered us faith in the finished work of the Christ, the Anointed One of God. You see, real faith is not affected by our circumstances, as I said to you last week. Real faith trusts the promises of God, even when we don't see them fulfilled. Real faith rests in God's sovereignty, even when life hurts. Even when our expectations are dashed. Even when we don't live to see the promise fulfilled. I mean, one great promise I'm looking forward to is Jesus said to His disciples in John 14, and if I go and, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That was 2,000 years ago. Do I believe that promise? I absolutely do. Do I hope I live to see it? I absolutely do. But even if I don't live to see it, I still believe it. And see, the, our faith in God should not be damaged in the slightest if we don't live to see all Jesus' promises fulfilled, we still trust God, regardless of the circumstances. Just as those people in Hebrews 11, they all, he said, received a good testimony by faith, but they never lived to see the promise. But they still kept a good testimony by faith. A family friend of ours recently had a little boy with an extremely rare, just, just born just a couple months ago, with an extremely rare genetic disorder. He's not expected to live very long. And I would like to read to you the social media posts that describe a little bit of their journey. Although these were social media posts, I'm going to avoid the names other than the name of the little guy. And I want you to think about this. This, this is such a beautiful picture 
of what real faith in God is all about and how it plays out in our lives, even if your expectations get dashed, even if life is hard, even if you get terrible news, even if you have no idea what's coming in the future, faith, real faith, continues to carry people through. This is what the mom said. Unexpectedly, a month early, our little son was born this morning. God has a different road ahead than what our minds were thinking. He has facial abnormalities, a cleft palate, and breathing issues due to the structure of his head. The doctors haven't been able to diagnose his condition yet, just trying to keep him stable. We don't know what this journey will look like, but we ask for your prayers, especially for our other children, they got several other kids, that they would see God's hand in all this, and that Michael's life would bring glory to himself, meaning God, she's got it capitalized, hoping to hold him, maybe tomorrow. A week or so ago, or just actually just, just a few days ago, she says, today we received the results from Michael's genetic tests at long last. The meeting was not what we wanted to hear, but what we knew could be a possibility. Michael has bent bone dysplasia, a super rare condition which only 15 babies have been documented with having. Only three of those babies survived birth, four now including Michael. Of those other three babies, the longest to live was 13 months. The bones are fragile, bent, and can't sustain life for long. All of them had a tracheostomy and feeding tube. So it's a terminal situation with lots of decisions ahead. God allowed our little guy to make it this far, which is a gift, and we have no idea how long he could make it. We are hoping to get him home, a process that will take four or more months to do, and then he will need 24-7 care with having a tracheostomy and G-tube and much training. Never thought we'd be medical parents like this. All the staff at the hospital are wonderful, very supportive, and wanting to make stuff happen that we want for Michael. There will be lots of other teams involved now, end-of-life teams, plastic surgeons, and all that. We definitely felt strength and peace from the Lord through your prayers. Michael's story isn't done, and God may have much ahead. He is God, and there is no one like him. His ways are past finding out, and all his ways are just. Michael's little journey seems to go well with the meaning of his name, who is like the Lord. Then a couple of days later, just yesterday, I finally got Michael's one-month pictures done with the help of, the, of a kind nurse. They are completely different than my other children's monthly portraits, but they are memories made, and I'm thankful for that. Processing this news that we will have a short time to love Michael has been overwhelming, painful, and heartbreaking, all the while feeling God's peace. It still feels like a dream, these visits to my silent baby. It just can't be our reality. Almost all the joys of having a newborn have been taken away from me. I've never heard him cry, and I probably never will hear him on this earth. His siblings haven't met him and probably won't for months. I will never nurse him. But I hope I can one day dress him in sleepers, walk around my house soothing him, cuddle in bed together, and leave our home with him in his car seat with his diaper bag. All those simple, normal things are now luxurious thoughts and dreams. But in, the, in all these hard moments, I'm grateful, so grateful, for the hope of heaven, 
for all will be made new one day. And though I really wish I could hear my little boy's voice, his first sounds will be heard by Jesus, who both hears our voice and our hearts. He is our hope. That, my friends, is genuine faith in the living God. Faith that is not affected by challenging circumstances. Faith that is trusting the promises of God. Faith when our expectations are dashed. Faith when life hurts. This is the kind of faith that is just as real as anybody listed in Hebrews chapter 11. It is the faith that comes from trusting the finished work of Christ on the cross. Does your supposed faith view God as, as a genie in a lamp? If you rub Him the right way, you get what you want? That's a, that's a false, me-centered faith. Or does your life demonstrate genuine faith? Confidence in God, regardless of life circumstances, following God to the very end, even when we never see the promises of God fulfilled. That's the real deal. That's real faith. Let's pray. Lord, we know that lots of twists and turns in this life, in this old world, Lots of unexpected things happening. Lots of news we never wanted to hear that some of your people get. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful testimony of this young mother whose hope is in God, who is rejoicing in the fact that although she will never nurse her baby, although she will never hear his little voice, she knows that the first person to hear his voice will be Jesus when he leaves this life. Lord, I pray that we would have that kind of faith. That no matter what happens in this world or in this country or to us personally, no matter what happens, that we will stand on the truth of the Word of God, that You are holy and righteous and just, and there is no one like You. And even in times of trial, and even in times of human suffering, and even when our expectations are unfulfilled, and even when our hopes are dashed, you are still God. And you still love us. And we can, as all of these people in Hebrews 11, we can receive a good testimony through our faith, even when we don't see the promises of God fulfilled. Because we know one day, Lord, we will be in heaven with you. And then everything that you've promised us will come to pass. Help us, Lord, not to live for this life, but to live for eternity. We pray in the beautiful and strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.